Hey there, teenager toddler fans. I just wanted to jump on right quick before we get started to give a trigger warning to our listeners and let you know that we are discussing some pretty heavy stuff today with our guest, including suicide. So just want to make you aware of that before you listen and before you tune into the podcast today. Uh, We'll be leaving links and other information in the show notes and reach out to us if you have any questions or if you need to be pointed in the right direction about anything we discussed today. And with that, on with the show. You say teenager, I say toddler. Two longtime friends in different seasons of parenting process the past while dealing with the craziness of today. Enjoy! Welcome back, everybody, to You Say Teenager, I Say Toddler. Teenager, toddler, teenager, toddler. Hi. Hello. How is everyone doing today? Well, I'm good. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't really care about you all that much, but uh, just quick introductions, and then we're going to jump right in. I am Leanne. I am an old married mother who lives in the greater Austin area with my husband and my toddler son. I'm Kurt. I live in the Los Angeles area in NoHo. I am a single, looking to mingle, gay dad of an 18-year-old daughter who is still in high school, living at home. Yay. Yay. (laughs) And, you know, we need to do a check-in soon on this looking to mingle aspect of your your introduction. I'd like to know more about how that's going, but not right now. Right now, we're going to say hello to our guest, Ah! Ali Halada. Sally Hallida. Sally Hallida. I'm sorry. It's okay. Okay. We're going to say hello to our guest, hey guys. Sally Hallida. Hello. Um, nice to be here. Welcome back, yo. Nice to be back. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, this isn't the first time we've had Sally on the show, you guys. If you missed our last two episodes, go back and listen to those if you can. It's our first chat where Sally sat down and talked to us about how she became a single mom of four boys. Um, how she kept them alive and worked without any help financially or otherwise. And uh, yeah, and gave us some good parenting advice and things like that. And then today we are going to have our part two chat with her, if you will, um, about another chapter in her life. Uh, it's a heavy chapter. I guess two chapters, you could say, that she's going to open up and talk to us about because she really feels like it can help a lot of people. And we do, too. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Yep. And my my life took uh, has taken many different turns. That's for sure. So, yeah. Well, so when we left off, I mean, you were just kind of telling us about the growing up years for your boys. Remind me how old they were whenever you and their father separated. So yeah, we separated in 2005. So that means that, yeah, my oldest was 10, 10 or 11. And then uh, my youngest was almost two. Okay. So it was, it was something, you know, and as I told my, I've I've told my kids now, um, and they're very supportive about my decision. They, they, we went through back and forth talking about it, but they're very supportive. They understood why I, I, but I moved them kind of down the street into a house because we needed to be in a bigger place. But then 
also, I wanted to work on my marriage because I don't make a vow and then dismiss it. Like I'm not happy. I mean, I wanted to work on it and I wanted to go to therapy. I wanted to work on it. And so I was hoping that he would then join us if we work things out. So that was my plan. So yeah, my oldest was, um, cause he was born in 1995. So he was 10, 11. And I really encouraged, I always, because I came from a divorced family where they did not get along. And so, mm-hmm. um, my father moved out of the country. My father moved to Saudi Arabia, which oh. is another whole story because he wanted to make a lot of money. And so we didn't have an issue with custody like that, but my mother wasn't very supportive of my, because she just felt like I was kind of being disloyal and seeing my father whenever he would come into town. So, oh. so with my children, I never wanted them to have that. I wanted, wanted them to have a relationship because I know I, I feel very strongly that I know, especially boys need a, need a relationship with their father. They need to at least reconcile their relationship with their father. They have to have some sort of sense of what that relationship is with their father. And I didn't want to be the one in the way. I didn't want them to say that, oh, well, mom didn't let us see, see dad or whatever. I wanted it to be separate, you know, okay. my relationship with their dad and their relationship. So, right. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty amicable because he was down the street. He could come anytime he wanted, but that was the thing about my ex-husband. God rest his soul. He's passed away. Um, but he passed away last year, not from COVID. And we'll talk about that, but he, um, he was just very passive. And so that was part of the problem was that he didn't really fight for our marriage. He didn't really fight for any of it. And so that was why it was, it was, it ended up being a good decision on my part, because I just needed, I needed to take a to stand kind of and saying, this is not okay Yeah. Um, for us to live like this. And so that's the thing. That's a, that's a difficult decision that you have to make, but it's tricky. So you have to make a stand. So I was, you know, trying to do that and make sure that, but also make sure it was really clear that they could see him whenever they wanted. And, and what was interesting was that my kids were younger and they didn't even really see that he was being, um, that he, what he was being so passive and everything else. So they were surprised when we split and then, but that was good because I wanted him to have the opportunity to kind of step back in and maybe they wouldn't even notice. And then they wouldn't have any resentment or anything like that against him. But unfortunately he really didn't step back in as much as he, he could have. And so there was, um, later my kids started questioning a lot of his decisions and things like that. So it was, it was, it was a a challenging time, you know, and that's part of what I talked about in the last episode about the single mom syndrome, where you start thinking like that you're, you really battle with trying not to be like superior, the superior parent, the better parent, I know better, I'm, you know, I got this and having all the control it's Mm -hmm. it, you have to be really careful not to get too caught up with all of that, which is why I wanted to date and have a relationship. And I wanted my children to be around a man who is a good role model for them and to see how somebody who has a job and who cares for their family and and takes responsibilities and all of that stuff. I just wanted them to be around that without my telling them how to be. Right. You know? So, well, okay. So that kind of segues us into what you are going to 
uh, talk about today, um, which is the person that you ended up dating after your first marriage. How long were you single before you started dating? Um, so I was, oh, that's a good question. So, <laughs> several years, several years, because I'm kind of never been that type of person that likes to jump right into another relationship. I always need time. I, my whole life, I was always like that. I always needed time. I had girlfriends and that's fine. I think they're just different types of people, but there's some that like to go right back in. I always need time to sit around and think about it. Think about what my part was in it. Why didn't it work out? And just kind of get myself back into the, I don't know, <laughs> into wanting to get involved. So I uh, start. so John was my boyfriend and I started dating him about, I think it was two or three years after. And he and I were more friends. I knew him from church and he, I, I sort of knew him and I started having like lunch and stuff like that with him. And so I wasn't even really sure that I was that interested, like relationship wise. I wasn't even really sure. I, I in the past, <laughs> I was always kind of a one date kind of madly love with the guy kind of thing. <laughs> and I never was, I had, I, I never was like, went out to lunch and went home and went, I don't know. I don't know. Do I like him? I don't know. And I've always thought that he was kind of like, um, there's that movie Volta called Michael where he's the angel. And he says, um, this one woman in the movie goes, I don't, I'm not that attracted to you. All the women around you are attracted to you, but I'm not. And he says, Oh, I blocked you. I turned you off. I turned it off. And I always felt oh. like that was John. I always felt like John wasn't ready yet. And so he kind of blocked it and I didn't feel it. And so we, for like nine months, we went out to lunch and we would do things together and I'd go home and I'd go, I don't know. Like my friends would go, you keep going to lunch with this guy. Are you dating him? And I go, I don't know. I don't know. And then one night we went out to the movies and I was used to kid and we went to the cat and the fiddle in Los Angeles. And uh, yeah. And we were having this long talk and he leaned over and gave me a big kiss and I went, Oh, that's it. I was, <laughs> so I had my kind of, uh, I had my, that moment, but it was after nine months of having lunch with him, it was really funny. <laughs> and it just literally took a, it just took a turn. And then it was like, we were dating. It was weird. So um, it was an interesting relationship because he was very, um, I want to be respectful because he has children. And so he was a very, um, but he was very cool about being in recovery. So he had been at, uh, he was an editor in Hollywood and he was pretty uh, successful. And he was part of kind of the age in Hollywood where they used alcohol, drank, and then also cocaine. And so he was, he had had kind of quite the colorful life. And it was funny because I met him at church. And so I never, <laughs> I never would have known that that he was kind of like a cigarette smoking leather jacket wearing my motorcycle dude. Like I never knew that from church. And I have to say that that got, that was kind of attractive about him actually when I found that out, but he, he was the type of person that could handle like at the time we thought kind of white knuckle, he could handle his addiction. And so when I, um, when I was dating him, he thought he could, just drink. So he could manage his addiction by drinking. And so it, it, he was, I never felt like in danger. 
Um, I never felt like he never was the type of person that was going to hit rock bottom. He was always very successful. He wasn't, you know, he just didn't, he looked like the kind of guy who was like living the dream, you know? Oh, he played guitar. He, he was a multi-talented person. He, I, in fact, Anthony Bourdain, like really reminds me of him, you know, it's just one of those people that not necessarily the life of the party, um, because one of the things he liked about me was that I was much more outgoing and at parties and stuff and Hollywood stuff, I could mix and mingle and talk to people. Mm-hmm. And he was a little uncomfortable in those situations. But when you scratch the surface and you got down in, you found out that he had, he was just a really interesting person, really a lot of interests, really great cook. He had plants everywhere. Like he just was a really interesting person. And so we dated for, um, so I'll go ahead and then I'll back up. So we, we were together seven years and he really showed me like what our relationship was about. And we really, we had a lot of, I, 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 there was the first time in my life in a relationship where I really felt like I could communicate with somebody. I didn't have to be a certain way. I could just be myself. And he really opened my eyes to a lot of things on how to be in a relationship. And he, he wasn't necessarily an expert. He wanted, cause he felt like he needed to learn how to be in a relationship. So as the years went on, he started realizing that he was drinking too much. And so he realized that he should probably quit drinking and cause he would go in waves. Like I went right on the motorcycle with him after a while. Cause I was like, you know, I'd be honest with you. I don't really know how much you've had to drink because he covered it so well. And I have children. I can't ride on the motorcycle with you. And so there were things that we started having these conversations and, and, um, and so finally he decided he wanted to go be sober. So he was sober and he started going to AA and I started going to Al-Anon. And then that was really the sweet spot of our relationship for a good year and a half was that he always wanted to know my Al-Anon stories and what did I, you know, what did I learn in Al-Anon? Um, and he was going to AA for a while. And then of course he stopped, but he was sober for, for that year and a half. And it was, it was really great. And we were really in this great place. And then he decided he was going to open up a coffee shop. He was going to leave editing and he was going to open up his own coffee shop. And that in and of itself is, is a very long story in a nutshell. He, he got so addicted to setting up this coffee shop and he started spending so much of his money to rent the place, to refurbish the place. And it was beautiful. He was going to roast his own beans. He studied rose roasting. His apartment smelled like coffee all the time. Um, and so part of me went, I think this is a good idea. And then the other part of me went, I don't think this is a good idea because I don't think he knows what he's getting himself into. And I don't know if he, he has it in me. I managed a jewelry store. I understood retail. And I was like, I don't think he knows what he's getting himself into. And so it just started kind of spiraling. So he went right back to the old coping mechanisms of what he had done before. So he started drinking and then it was like, he would have these panic attacks. And so I said, well, you know, maybe you need to see a doctor and talk about the panic attacks. Well, it's crazy now, but you go and you go to see a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist basically just 
talks to you for five minutes and then writes a prescription. So they gave him uh, benzodiazepines, which is Xanax and Ambien. And he had never taken those before. So you give somebody who, and I've since found out that he also had some depression. You give somebody benzodiazepines, then he was drinking. Then he found people who also took Xanax and he borrowed from them because he started going back into the old behavior of, um, of that. Meanwhile, everybody's supporting him on this coffee shop and how great this, this is. It's so great. And I'm sitting here thinking, I don't think this is great. He seems like he's, you know, it was almost like he said, I think I'm going to do heroin. And everybody went, I think that's a great idea, you know, uh, because I really felt like the coffee shop was an addiction. And yeah. so I, he, can I interject yeah, for a minute and just make yeah. sure I understand the timeline. So you said that y'all were together for seven years. So from the time you started dating until the time where you parted ways, which you'll talk about in a minute, um, mm-hmm. was seven years. When you met him, he was drinking, but he was not doing any any hard drugs like cocaine or whatever he had done. No, no, no. He had gone to Betty Ford. So he was, no, he was. He was dried out from everything but alcohol. Right. And then. Which doesn't really count. (laughs) um, It's either you're, you know. Yeah. You're sober or you're not. Yeah. Um, So how long into the relationship was it? How long had y'all been together? before he did go to AA and get sober for that year and a half. So it was um, like, like five, four and a half years. Okay. So you were four and a half years in, he gets sober for a year and a half. Um, And so now we're around year six when he decides he's fine to drink again and he's going to open up a coffee shop. Well, yeah, he more opened the coffee shop. He started working. He worked on the coffee shop for almost a year beforehand. Before he opened it. When he was sober, he was working on the idea when he was sober. Yes. Sober man. That was what was, that was always the thing I kept saying. Like I kept thinking, well, sober man wanted the coffee shop, Mm. but the alcoholic was the one who ended up opening the coffee shop, you know, it, oh wow, because he, he, because he shifted over and then he was, it was just, he was different you know? Okay. And I realized now he was six, he was 60, turned 61, um, in 2016. And so I think there was, he just, I don't know. I mean, you can, I, you can, I I've been thinking, you know, I go around. So let me tell the story and then I'll back up. So, um, so in January of 2016 was, was when he started taking the Xanax and then really drinking, the coffee shop was going to open up on Valentine's Day, in 2016. That's when he was going to have his big opening. So he, um, as we got closer to the opening, he got more and more stressed out. He was having panic attacks. It was awful. And so I, uh, my mother at the time was living. My mother had moved in and was living with me. And uh, that's another story, <laughs> but she was watching my kids. So I said to her, I think I need to take a week before the coffee shop opens. And I think I just need to stay with John and help him through this because he's really having a hard time. And I was worried. I was starting to get worried that he was going to do something drastic and his kids were worried and his ex-wife was worried and we were all starting to get worried. So the idea was 
to get over the opening of the coffee shop. And then he could seek, get real help because he invested so much of his life savings into this coffee shop and wanted it to like, at least get on the ground, could have other people run it and then maybe he could get help. And so that was the plan. And so that was the plan. So I told him that I said, I'm going to be with you. And, you know, I'm going to stay with you and we will get through the coffee shop opening and then we'll put you in some sort of program. So we did the coffee shop opening. It was a huge success within our world. He was kind of famous, you know, like in our Facebook world and in our church world and his friends and yeah, everything. And he had a quite a big circle because he had been in a lot of involved in a lot of TV shows and stuff. And so he had a big circle. So it was a big success. And that was February 14th, 2016. On Monday, I took him to the doctors. We had a doctor's appointment. He's had motion pictures. So he had the best insurance. And we went to the doctor and we were telling the doctor that he had panic attacks. Of course, he was all showered and he looked great. And the doctor goes, well, what are your panic attacks about? And he goes, well, I just opened a coffee shop. And the doctor goes, oh, maybe that's, that's it. That's it. Prescribes him lithium. And then I said, well, no, we need help. Is there somebody we can talk to? So they said, we can go down and talk to the social worker. So we went down and talked to the social worker and explained everything. It's very young man, very sweet, but very young man. And he said, oh, well, um, the only thing we have is we do have a 30 day outpatient where you can go and stay there, but you can still use your phone. See, the thing is, is a lot of these, these, these things you put them in, they can't have their phone. Right. So he needed to talk about the coffee shop. So we thought he was willing to do it. He knew he, he knew he wasn't right. He, he knew this, it was, this is not somebody who was not asking for help. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, there's not a lot of help out there and um, it's not or, or, or whatever. So we, so we signed him up for that. I said, can I bring him there today? And they go, no, we have to put all the paperwork through. I have an appointment for you 9am tomorrow morning. And I said, okay, well, can we just go and sit there like in the waiting room and maybe they'll take them faster. And they were like, no, it'll be okay. We have an appointment 9am. Just bring them tomorrow at 9am. So I'm like with doctors right? With the best doctors possible telling me it's all going to be fine. So there's a phone call and John leaves the room and uh, he gets a phone call. He goes out and the guy looks at me. It's very sweet young man. And he said, the fact that he brought you means he won't do anything Mm. because he brought you and he asked for help and he brought you with him. He's not going to do anything rash. And we'll take care of him when we put him in the outpatient. And I said, okay, okay. So that made me feel better. So we went home and went back to his apartment and he fell asleep on the sofa because he hadn't been sleeping at all. And he fell asleep and I almost took a picture of him asleep and texted it to his daughter, who was at college across the country and said, look, he's doing fine tomorrow. We're putting him in a outpatient. He'll be fine. It it looks like he's going to be okay. I almost did it. And then I thought, oh, that's silly. I don't want to worry her. You know, I don't know. It was really a weird moment. And so we got dinner, we watched TV, which we hadn't done in a month. And I thought, okay, you know, he's okay. So in the middle of the night, he had a horrible panic attack, 
horrible. And I almost called 911. But I was like, we're going tomorrow at 9am. If mm-hmm. I call 911, he's going to be put in a 72 hour hold, mm-hmm. they're going to put him in a, a gown. And I just and they won't release them for three days. We have this thing going on. So he took an Ambien and he started getting quiet and, and he started relaxing. And I thought, okay, it'll be okay. But I remember thinking to myself at that moment, I said, you know, I really, I really feel like I'm with somebody who might have like stage four cancer, like mental illness wise. Like it really hit me that this is, this is like what it feels like when you can't fix something. Like I started Mm -hmm. worrying, I wasn't going to be able to fix this or, you know, and I remember thinking to myself, I wasn't gonna be able to do this by myself. I was going to have to ask his son, his kids were in their twenties, ask his son for help, ask for help. I wasn't gonna be able to do this by myself. I have my own children. Like I remember just thinking this as he was like falling asleep and I held him and I am so grateful. I don't know what caused me to do this, but I told him how much I loved him. He was going to be okay. How wonderful he is. I said all these things to him and he was awake. He was awake. He heard me. So the next morning I I was so tired. So I was up for a while and I finally went to sleep and I woke up at seven in the morning and, um, and I was looking for him and I thought I'd heard him get up earlier, but I wasn't sure. And I walked around and, and I noticed that he had his, his wallet and his, um, and his keys and everything were all there. And so I went, well, is he putting flyers? Cause he was putting flyers under ca- uh, under cars, but I was like, he'd bring his keys. Cause he lived in an apartment. So he'd bring his keys. So I got, I, I don't, I just got, so I don't want to, I, I, cause it's a podcast. I don't want to get too graphic. So I've, I found him and he had taken his life and I had to call the police and the neighbor the neighbor, I called the neighbor, probably heard me and called the police. The police came. And so I, I, um, I called his ex-wife and she came and I, it was so strange because I felt like I was in a movie mm-hmm. and I was playing like the part of a person in a movie, like what would they do next? And I was in such shock and I couldn't, I was so mad at him. I was so mad at him. Like, why did you do this? And I said that to him, like, why did you, why would you do this? Like, it was so out of character for him, first of all. And I think a lot of people could relate to it because it's like Anthony Bourdain, like nobody, nobody could understand why Anthony Bourdain would take his life. And I could see after John died, I actually saw it in Anthony Bourdain's eyes before he took his life, I could see it. Cause I was like, oh, there's wow. this thing in their eyes and there, and he, he just, um, I was just, I could, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And so the police came, I write a lot. I wrote a story about it in my blog, um, about the day it happened because, um, there were police there and there was, and the thing is, is that it's a crime scene and you have to, um, you have to talk to the police. The police have to make sure that you didn't do anything. Um, he was, he died the same way that Anthony Bourdain died. So um, they have to make sure that, that they, they know how everything 
happened and they want you to tell them. And so I, and I call, so I called his ex-wife right away because I, the first people I thought of were his children. And because he had just had this coffee shop opening, the last thing I wanted was people to find out about it and have his children find out after. So I called her, she came immediately. She didn't live far away. And we just like cried on the, we just sat on the sofa and just like cried and cried. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, okay, I need to call. Cause her daughter was across the country. She had to call her son. I, I just sat there and I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe he was the thing about John was John was an amazing father mm-hmm. to his children. Mm-hmm. And he was so hands-on. They were a trio. They did so much together. He was such an inspiration to me when we were dating because he was big about experiences. You have to do stuff. You're, you don't do enough with your children. Why don't you do more with your children? And I go, I don't have any money. <laughs> I don't have any money. Mm-hmm. And he would, he would go, I don't care. You need to figure out how to do more with your children because you're always worried about you know, expenses and everything else. And I understand that, but you need to take them to dinner. You need to, or you need to take them to a park or you need to hike with them. You need to do more with them. Cause I would get tired. I was doing so much and I just get tired. Of course he was, when it came to holidays, you know, like right around this time's hard because he would call me up and go, Oh, what are we doing? We doing Thanksgiving. Are we cooking? Are we doing this? Should we all do that? Should we do is all about the planning, you know? We got to do this. We got to do that. He would just give me, he'd go, my gift to you is take, take your kids here, go take them somewhere. You know, he would just mm-hmm. always encourage that because with his kids, he'd take them skiing. He'd take them. And, and it wasn't like all fancy. It was just time spent with his children Right, was paramount to him. And when I sat there, I couldn't believe that she was going to have to tell him. Hmm. I I, I still can't wrap my head around it that yeah. how, and there was a time there's times when I've thought about it, when I went, I was grateful. Well, I'm ahead of myself when I finally saw his children and we cried and sat on the ground crying together, his daughter wanted to know like what happened. And I just told her, I, I told them both. I said, I can bear this. I'll tell you when you're ready, but I'm not telling you now what happened. Oh, wow. Cause I can bear this. Mm-hmm. And that's all you need to know for now is that because it just didn't seem right for them to know exactly how it happened right then. And mm-hmm. so since then I, I told them, but I, I just, they just needed to kind of process it all. So we literally had his memorial service because I, because we were both prominent at the church. We had the memorial service Saturday. He died on a Tuesday, on a Tuesday morning and we had it Saturday and 500 people showed up and it was, it was, it was odd (laughs) because a couple people spoke that were from his past and from his addiction past. And so they were a little too colorful with explaining his, his past and didn't really know him. The one I know, the man I knew who was trying to 
you know, look at that next section of his life as a, as a healthy person Mm -hmm. and how he was trying so hard to try and figure that out. And, um, so it was an odd memorial service, but the, after the memorial service at the reception, there were so many people there, there to support me there to be there for me. And the ones that stick out are the ones that look you in the eye and they go, I've been through this. You need to call me when you're ready. Yeah. Some of my friends and some people I'll close that I had no idea that they lost their father to suicide. They lost their brother to suicide. They, I had no idea. And just knowing that they were able to function afterwards gave me inspiration to go, okay, I'm, I, I'll, I'll be able to figure this out. I guess I'll be able to figure this out. I, and so I, we had the memorial service, all my kids wore, it was a, it was a strange thing, but I encouraged it. Cause I didn't want to, my kids all wore clothes that he had given them. Mm. Oh, so they looked casual, mm-hmm. but they were very adamant about wearing all the things. Cause he would take them shopping mm. and pick out stuff for them and sneakers. And it was a special thing at their birthdays that he'd like to take them shopping. And so they all wanted to wear the sweatshirts and the t-shirts and the shoes. And it was one of those funny moments where I was like, it was like, whatever you think you need to do to honor him, I support, you know? Mm-hmm. Can I ask and you so a few it was, questions? Uh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I want to like kind of circle back around and clarify a few things and feel free to tell me I'm not okay with answering that. Oh, if sure. I, if there's anything no, no. that I ask. I, this is your pot. So I want you to tell me what I can say. So <laughs> that's fine. It's you totally can fine. say whatever you can share, whatever yes. you want to share. We're going to give a, you know, a trigger warning to our audience in the show notes. And, and I can also record something separately to let them know um, that there's a trigger warning in here, but um, Okay. So I just wanted to clarify as well. You guys were always dating, living separately. You were never married under the same roof. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of that was because I knew there was, I felt like there was some, a little bit more work he needed to do. I wasn't quite, I wasn't quite comfortable with having him live with us. Okay. Because I didn't think that he quite had the addiction Handled. Under control. Okay. So he wanted to live with you. He wanted to get married and all the things. And um, kind of no, not, not particularly. No, no, we both, we both were pretty okay with being, um, being separate and spending time together and we'd go on trips together and things like that. And it was actually, it was okay. I have, I had four children. Right. And that would be quite the, we, we, we talked about it here and there. But I think it was more of a question of it was right around the bend that kids were going to start moving out and going to school. And I think that was what we were, you know, we were, we never really, it was funny because he would write, he would give me three or four cards every birthday, every holiday, three or four cards. And it was, it was always uh, our life together. There was never a question that we were kind of like moving forward together. Mm -hmm. There was never any like that we, we, we literally had this relationship where we both felt like we didn't quite have it right. And we both wanted to work on it. Okay. And so we were kind of doing that, you know? 
Yes. Makes sense. So you always felt secure in the relationship that you were moving the needle forward, but you weren't quite where you wanted to be before you were to actually like get married and, and share a house together. And your kids were not where they would need to be in order for you to feel comfortable with that. His, you mentioned his daughter was in college across country. His son was also out of the house when you guys were dating. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so his children drived, were but when we were dating, he was in college. That was the other thing was that they were still school, college, you know, his kids were a year and two years, three years older than my oldest. Okay. And they all knew each other. They all grew up at church together. And oh. in fact, everybody was blonde. Yeah. <laughs> they all went out to dinner together. People thought we were all a big, huge family of six Cute. kids. And they all looked alike. It was funny. In fact, my son used to be called little name of his son because he looked so much like him. Oh, wow. And people mm. thought that, John was my oldest dad because they knew each other and they worked together in church things together. So it was, it was a funny and everybody was fine with it. You know, we all kind of laughed about it that we all looked alike. It was funny. Okay. So, so it was at the end of the seventh year and you're, I guess what I'm wondering is your boys, how often would they see him and what were they in the house? Were you in you I was at his, his apartment. You were in his apartment. So no, they were no. And I in that pat last year, I had limited how much we did okay with him. So when he started it, drinking again and started having the panic attacks and started on the meds that the psychiatrist had given him, you kind of pumped the brakes in terms of the amount of time that your boys were spending with him. Yep. Okay. Yep. Because I wasn't sure where it was going. He didn't start the medication. I really do think the medication played a big part because so that he, was, he started yeah. it a month before. That was my next he took question. His life. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. You mentioned, you know, that the psychiatrist, they, they barely talk to you and then they give you these meds. And so now he's, you know, added Xanax and um, Ambien, did you say, into the mix of things that his body has has been introduced to and maybe even grown addicted to. Then um, in the end, when you guys were getting help after the coffee shop opened, he, they, he was also prescribed lithium. Were any or all of those things in his system when he took his life? Yeah. I mean, I, yep. I, we went and got the, got the prescription filled for the lithium. And I, I thought about it, and, but then I had a, I remember a friend of mine said to me, if you hadn't filled that prescription, you would have thought that was why. Oh yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's, so mm, it's a yeah. roller coaster. Mm -hmm. It is an absolute horrible roller coaster to recover from somebody's suicide. It doesn't, it's, um, it's a roller coaster and you're, you're constantly rethinking and going back and restepping everything, every decision you made that you could have done something. And that's the thing. It is the immortal power decision. It's, it is what we wrestle with all our lives. How much control do you have over things? Mm -hmm. And it tests that more than anything else. Step one. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't have control over somebody else's life, mm -hmm. but you, it takes you a long time to get there. Right. To get to that place of, of accept, accepting. And some people never do. And that's the thing. It's like, that's one of the things I feel strongly about as being a, so it's a suicide loss, loss survivor. 
suicide survivors, usually somebody who has attempted suicide and, and has survived and is still with us. Thank God. Um, a suicide loss survivor is somebody who's lost somebody close to them. So they, it, they had to play around with the terms and that's where they landed as suicide loss survivor is somebody who's somebody close to them. They're, they're directly affected by somebody's suicide. And then the smaller little group that I'm in that I don't wish on anybody is the one who finds them. So there's a whole, there's a whole therapy wing for that to get over that because there there's PTSD involved. There's all sorts of other things involved on top of just the loss, just the grief and there's grief counseling. Then there's suicide grief counseling. Then there's PTSD from being the person who found them grief counseling. And that's, that's, it, it, it is, it's a, it's a, and that's a, that's a, the next stage. Um, Did he have, because um, sorry, no, go ahead. if you don't mind me asking, like, had he taken all of the lithium from the prescription that you had filled and as well as other things or had he just like taken, no, he had just taken the one. No, he didn't dose. die from overdose. Right. He, I was he, just wondering if yeah. that was like, you know, how much was in his system when he made that decision? So he'd only taken well, that, the that's one what I dose. Yeah. And that's what, that's one of the things I worry about now. I'm not an anti-medication person right. um, at all. And I, I do think that if guided by proper doctors, you know, uh, guidance, I do think that these medications can work and I, I'm not against it, you know, but I do think that there needs to be some real like understanding who you're giving it to. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he was not somebody who was going to take things by the directions they needed to know that, you know, or I don't think that they really knew that about him or understood that about him. Um, so he didn't take them as prescribed, which was okay. a problem. But um, so they didn't uh, I, go over his addiction history with him. No, he well, didn't. Really? No, she was going on a cruise. Oh, my God. I remember him oh. coming back and I asked him, I said, how is your visit to the doctor? And he said, she, she was going on a cruise. She saw me for 10 minutes and the guy who we saw, you know, the day before he took his life, saw him for five minutes and I was in the room with him. Right. And I said to him, he's not, he, you know, so the doctor said to him, have you thought about taking your life? And he said, yes. And he said, do you know how you do it? And he didn't answer. And so then the doctor said, well, you're just stressed. And John knew he knew that because he had a brother that had mental illness and that he had to deal with. And he knew if he said yes, then they'd call and put him in a 70 tower hold. So he knew not to say that one last thing. And that's, that's the thing, you know, after he died, I remember listening to the radio and there was a young interviewer on NPR after Anthony Bourdain died interviewing a chef that was a good friend of his and who was very broken up about his death. Um, It's, you know, they're having this conversation saying how, what amazing person he was. And this young interviewer said, yeah, he goes too bad. He was just a phone call away from help. And I, I remember just sitting there and thinking, wow, you really don't know. You think Anthony Bourdain is going to call the phone number. Now, listen, 
you do whatever you need to do and you need to get them to do whatever you need to get them to do. But there are some people, especially a 60 some odd year old man who's been around, you know, he's lived his life calling a suicide hotline. Isn't necessarily going to be the thing, you know, right. I do think we need, we really need to look at this and it's going to be a problem. It's already bad from last year and it's definitely not going, not getting better. And so we really have to look at the mental illness aspect and have some, something in place about how they want to help, or you need to reach out, or you need to do this and all that other stuff. You should call this phone number. I remember after it happened, I hated seeing that phone number because I just thought it's just not that easy. And then I made my peace with the phone number. It's okay. Cause there are people that call the phone number and it helps them. We need to throw everything out at, you know, we have to have everything available because we need to cat some of these people we can catch. But what I worries about me about the medications is that I feel like whatever is it, what's in the medications that deadens your anxiety, it deadens, it deadens what makes you want to stay alive. Right. That thing deep down, when you hear somebody tell the story about how they got all the way down to rock bottom and they realized I can't do this and they made a phone call or they mm-hmm. checked themselves in somewhere or whatever and realized they couldn't go through this. I just, whatever that thing is, it worries me sometimes that the medication like deadens that. Right. And they're not in touch with that thing. Right. So, um, it tempers the anxiety, but it, you know, it tempers the fight right? as well. The scrappiness that we all possess to say, you know, no, I, I think I can do this or, or what have you. Yeah. I can see yeah. that. I can definitely see how that is a possibility, you know, cause the whole point is for it to help make you more even killed so that your emotions are not swinging back and forth out of control so bad. Cause that's really disconcerting and jarring. Yeah. Um, you right, want exactly. Feel- you want to feel more even so that you can kind of wade through what's going on and get to a better place. You know, hopefully it can like get by you time so that you can just, you know, chill out yeah. for a minute and be like, what's my game plan? What do I want to do? And then eventually, you know, you gradually come off of it because you don't need it anymore. And as you come off of it, you know, you're continuing to wade through everything and dealing with it um, without it. Now, obviously I'm not a doctor. I'm you know, zero background in this. Um, No, no, no. And no, but I, uh, one of my best, one of my favorite, you know, you listen to everything. One of my favorite things was I heard the advice of putting it off. And I've heard a lot of people talk about that. uh, Survivors talk about that of putting it off a day. Just don't do it today. Right. And it's kind of the AA thing, right? Uh You know, it's kind of the, just, just for today. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you could just get through today, Mm-hmm. Because it's a decision that you can never change. Right. It's a final decision. Yeah. That's it. So it's worth it to put it off a day. And it's worth it to call somebody. And it's worth it to talk to a doctor. And it's worth it to try a medication if that's what you need. It's worth it. And you can just put it off because you can always make that decision down the road. Yeah. It, you just don't have to do it today. And I've heard people who are survivors say that 
that was actually really helpful. It sounds really like scary, like to say to somebody, just put it off for a day because it, right. it panics anybody and the loved one around. But, but sometimes you just don't know what could happen tomorrow and what, what would be put in your path that will help you tomorrow. If John had just, I mean, it's tragic that he, if he had just gone to this program. And so that was the first thing. So the first thing afterwards, I thought to myself, I should have called 911. I should have put him in the 72 hour hold so that, that I made, I was, I, I, I screwed up. Then it was, then I found out stories of people who go in the 72 hour hold and they're released and then they take their life. So it's not a guarantee. Then I went, well, if I'd just gotten him in the 30 day, then that would be great. And then he would have, that would have done it. And he would have found his way. And then I heard stories of people who it didn't help, you know, and either while they were in it and if they had the access to leave, you know, and that was what was really important about going and reaching out to um, any, any mental health services and getting in support groups because you hear other people's stories and you get those answers to your questions because you'll have somebody in that support group will say, I, I did put them in and it didn't work. Now, not that that's, mm-hmm. that's tragic, but at least it calmed my spirit in a way that said that might not have worked. Right. So, yeah. so what I finally got to the point with that was I finally just said to myself, and this is what I say. I wish I could have gone into his brain and rewired his brain to make him not make the decision he made, but I don't have that kind of power. Mm -hmm. And it's sad that I don't have that kind of power, but I don't, and I can live with that. You know, I couldn't go in and rewire his brain. And um, it took me like four years to get there, you know, because you, it's a roller coaster. You one minute, you're fine. And then all of a sudden you, you zoom and you, and something triggers you. I can't tell you how many times people joke around about killing themselves oh. in comedy and in movies, yeah. oh joking around. And I don't want yeah. people to stop. Right. It means that they've never been through this, you know? So I don't want them to stop. I don't want the world to stop, them. you know, but. It, when you come over into that, this world. So one of the things I like to talk about is the fact that it did happen to him and his memory needs to be honored. And I don't, I don't not think about him every day. He loved the Beatles. He loved coffee and he loved motorcycles. So I'm <laughs> reminded of him every day. I wish he liked Ario Speedwagon or something like that. <laughs> like obscure band, but no, it had to be the Beatles. No. So I'm reminded of him all the time and I honor him and his memory and everything else. But my life changed within, within a a day overnight, it changed. I, it, it was, I was thrown into this whole other world and it's, it's not anything you ever really ever get over. Right. And if you do get over, if you do get over it, you feel like you're, you're constantly going in this, that you've, that it was okay what he did. Right. So you, you can't, you get just so far 
And then you think, well, I can't get too better because I don't want to make it okay with what he did. And it, it's the cycle, you know, that you have to like work through and it's not easy. It really isn't easy. Can I ask, can you walk us through when and how you told your boys what had happened with John and how, how you helped them through that? Well, I, I called when I, from the scene, I called my pastor from my church and who also of course knew John and he was a really amazing man. Um, we just lost him uh, last year, but he was 80, he was mm. 86, but um, he was an amazing man. And that, it, that was what he, that was what he was good at. I mean, there was no question that that's what he was good at. He showed up my doorstep when I got home, um, you know, after I got home and he was there when all my children came home from school. And um, one of my friends, and I had several friends show up and just kind of hang out with me that night. So we talked to the boys about it. And then my one friend, I remember looking, she, she looked at me and she said, do you want your oldest home? Cause he was at college. And I said, yes. And she said, he'll, we'll take care of it. And oh. the next morning at 10 AM, he walked in the door. Wow. So she got his phone number. I called him and told him what happened, but then they just made him appear. And, um, that was a really amazing time because my boys were, you know, this was before. And in the other episode, we talk about how they, they and I went through therapy. This is before we went through all the therapy, but my boys were really rocks. But the one thing I haven't shared is that their father, after we divorced was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. So, um, which is a disease that's similar to uh, Alzheimer's, ALS and Parkinson's. And so it's a, it's in, been in his family and it's a long kind of term, you know, where the person just gets sicker and sicker. So my kids are already kind of in this grief place. And when this happened to John, I had kind of limited how much they had spent time with them. So I don't think, so it didn't really hit them right away. Mm -hmm. They were kind of in shock. And my oldest was very, he was that he had to come home because he was definitely affected because he was close to John. And I remember one moment we were sitting and listening to music and the song helplessly hoping uh, was one of John's favorite songs by, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the thing. <laughs> helplessly hoping that, uh, I forget. Anyway, it's a harmonizing song. Um, and we were listening to the words and the words were like, all of a sudden, that's the thing. After something like this happens, you listen to a song and all the words now mean something mm -hmm. you hear now you, for the first time you go, oh my gosh, fire and rain, like all these songs you go, oh, I know what this song means. I never knew what the song meant before. So helplessly hoping was playing. And he and I just sat on the sofa and we just cried and cried and cried and cried. Aww. And it was, but it was good because we cried together and it was good and we needed to. And my son, my oldest son was the one that said, and I wrote it in a, as a thank you to all the people that came to the memorial service was that he was the, the one man we knew was somebody who was trying to be better. Mm -hmm. And he was trying so hard. We just never knew how hard it was for him. And he just did it for as long as he could. Mm -hmm. And he just couldn't do it anymore. But we got to see 
him at his absolute best. And he was our hero. And that was what my son said to see somebody really try to overcome what they, their addiction and everything that they had to. And he just, he did it so well that a lot of people didn't realize how hard it was for him. Mm -hmm. And so that helped me a lot to, you know, to try and find, make some sense of it. Um, But it was, it was hard because I really thought I had found kind of my soulmate. I kind of, you know, I had, I had, there were times in our relationship where I really was like, I, this guy, he was so generous. He was so good to me. He taught so taught me so many things about taking good care of myself and splurging on myself. And he was just such a, he was just such a larger than life kind of guy. And it really, it really took a lot out of me. I have not, I've tried to date a little bit since then, but I haven't yet. But I really needed to, like Kurt and I got to talk, have that conversation. <laughs> right? <laughs> you were Just saying a few weeks that. ago. And I'm, I feel like I'm ready now, but it took me a little while, you know, because I really felt like I had to go through it. Um, but you know what? Life is, it's a crazy world out there. And I started thinking about like, why did all this happen to me? But then, then again, there are people out there that have all these things happen to them. So mm-hmm. this is my this was my journey. And so, so after this happened, the one thing that you do is you go, cause when you're, everything's good, it's just like a tennis player or a football player. They won't shave. Like when everything's going good, they don't want to ruin the streak. Right. So they don't <laughs> change anything about their life. They don't change anything. But when something really traumatic happens, mm-hmm. that's the time actually for you to go, you know what? I'm going to reevaluate on what works and what doesn't work. And I'm going to get rid of things that don't work for me. And I'm going to start focusing on the things that are important to me. And so that was kind of what happened with my, um, with my kids. Then my kids, I think I was doing a lot of work on myself so that I think my kids kind of felt like they could unload and tell me all the things that they needed to work on. And so that's when all our whole therapy journey started. And that was really painful too. But then now we're all going to have Thanksgiving together. And I'm like super excited about that. And, you know, and we're all excited about they're going to make things. And I just really feel like we've come so far, you know? Yeah. And so what happened was, was that I found out that I wanted to tell the stories of, all these things that I'd learned on this journey. And so that's when I start, I decided I just did a podcast for a little while, but because I'm such a talker, I was lazy, you know, and I did the podcast and I, you know, would have friends on or whatever. And I, I just was lazy about it. And I, and so I realized that I've never really been disciplined about writing. And I was like, I think I need to write and learn how to write. And so then that's when I decided to do the, my blog and the, here we go, Kurt. And the, one of the big inspirations was, it was almost a year ago. I watched the crazy (laughs) documentary. And what happened was, was that I, I just got so caught up in the story of the Bee Gees and I annoyed. And this is what happens to me is that I'll see parallels. And I saw like, all the, I started putting these parallels together and I was like, Oh, I understand like kind of this whole thing. I don't know if 
Leanne, I don't know if you saw it. I don't know if you saw the Bee Gees documentary. Yeah. I highly recommend it. It was very good. <laughs> but anyway, the Bee Gees were a big band at the time in the 70s when I was young. Mm-hmm. They were huge. They were huge. People don't realize how big them. they were. I loved yeah. them. Yeah, they were huge, huge. And they went on a tour in 1979. They hit 43 states, 43 states in one year. Wowza. And, and they, they played at all the baseball stadiums. Like that's a huge concert. And everybody was safe because it was baseball stadiums. Um, so anyway, I went down that, I went down the road for the Bee Gees documentary. I'll tell you why in a second. But what happened was, was that I was so, I got so sucked in and I was like, this is something I do. I get really in, inspired by something and I want to talk about it. And I annoy all my friends by <laughs> talking too much about it to the point where they start adding, like doing drinking games and stuff. Like if I bring up something. <laughs> When I was young, I was like that about sharks. I went on this after I saw Jaws. I had to read all about sharks and my friends would be at a bar and my friends would look at me and go, if you bring up the bite radius of a bull shark while some cute guy's talking to us, I'll never speak to you again. Like, stop talking about sharks. So I've had this happen to me like my whole life. So I thought, well, what do I do about that? And I went, oh, I know I could write a blog. Why don't I write a blog? And so that's where the blog came from. The Bee Gees, I have to give Barry Gibb the credit because at the end of the Bee Gees documentary, they showed him 74 and he is the last Bee Gee alive. And the other boy, all his brothers have passed. And I remembered Andy Gibb and I was like his youngest brother. And I was like, did he die by suicide? I couldn't remember. And uh, then it was no, he ended up having a heart issue from addiction to cocaine. So I was like, okay, I... I want to like find out about this guy, this Barry Gibb guy, because he was stunning and gorgeous back in the day. Like what was his story? And I had a friend of mine who absolutely adored him. So I was like, okay. So I researched it and he's been married to the same woman for 51 years. So I'm like, how is that possible? Like, how is that possible that he was married to the same person and he never cheated? And I, nope, nope. And he has five children and all through the pandemic, they live a mile away. So they all, they all mm. pandemic together. And I was like, <laughs> this guy, like, who is this guy? Like, how is he able to do that? And how was he able to work through all the trials of being a superstar and all that, and then being canceled after disco and all of that stuff. And so I just went down the rabbit hole and then that was the, so I wrote the first blog post was why I'm doing a blog. And then the second blog post was the, the Barry Gibb one about his wife, because I was like, they never said anything about her in the documentary. And I've since found out that she didn't want, because she didn't want to take a side about the brothers and all that. So she had her stuff removed, but they have one of those classic, like, hold hands. They're together. They've always been together. They do charity work together. They're like that couple that you go, how did they do that? You know, where they're mm-hmm. partnership. And, and it, when you look at all the old clips and stuff, she's always right there. She was at every concert. He dedicated the songs to her. And it was just this kind of underlying thing that family was the most important thing to him. And I went, wow, I, this guy, like, how was he able, you know, so I, I get inspired by these people that are able to go through the suffering that life throws you and they're able to just overcome it and they're over able to move on and they're able to 
you know, make peace with it or whatever. And that was, you know, so it was, it's just, that was like really inspiring to me. So that's what the blog's going to be. And, um, and one of the things I've learned is that the discipline shows up every once in a while. I go, you got to write, you got to write something. And so I've written, I've written several entries, but I, I need to get back. And my next one I do want to do was, is the, I've done one about John and I'd like to do one about, um, the single parenting and I've got to write that. So learning and, and sharing and all that other stuff has really helped me. I um want you kind of brought up the timeline a little bit because uh, there's some crossover from what we talked about in the last podcast when we were going through the whole your children and, and you guys like healing your past. Right. And then mm-hmm. kind of airing their grievances and everybody forgiving each other. Um, So when you were grieving John's suicide was when everything whenever your fam- your you and your boys started unpacking yeah how long yeah. after the suicide did you guys step into therapy and start dealing with your past it was like a year okay so oh. a year later yeah and then, um, if i may also ask so you brought up your their father you brought up steve and his um you had talked a little bit about the last time about his huntington's disease mm-hmm. and he has since passed as a result of it Mm-hmm. Where in the timeline did that fall? He passed away last year in, okay. in April of last year. Okay. And he had moved away. He had moved and lived with his um, family. So I had supported him for a while. And then his family came and they took him and they, they wanted him in Phoenix. He didn't really want to go to Phoenix. That was a complicated family story, but he ended up in Phoenix with his family. And so the kids would go visit him in Phoenix and then he was a, a eventually in kind of his, wasn't really assisted living. Well, it was assisted living at the very end, but then he was on, kind of on his own, but he was in housing and then he was in assisted living. And I was really um, grateful to be able, his mother had passed away just before COVID lockdown. And I went to the memorial service of his mother and I got to see him and spend time with them. And I had this, I have these kind of pulls where I'll, get something to tell me that you need to say something. And I just sat with him and uh, he was really lucid. It was a really wonderful conversation. And I said to him that I didn't harbor any animosity. I was happy with, you know, the boys, we were in a good place. I didn't want him to think that there was any bitterness. And I was grateful for our relationship and that, you know, all of that. And we had this like really amazing conversation, even him being in a wheelchair and ill, it was still like in this amazing conversation. And when he passed away, I got overwhelmed. It's funny when you divorce, you kind of put aside all the happy moments because you can't move forward. If you sit around and talk about the, you know, and I think I've kind of put away all the happy moments. And after he passed away, it was like, I got flooded with all of the wonderful Mm -hmm. moments that between the two of us, and have since found some videos and things like that to share with the kids. So, Aww, you know, gosh. I could really kind of put that one at, at rest because I wouldn't have my wonderful boys if it wasn't for him. And he was another one. I think he just tried his best. Mm-hmm. You know, people are flawed and there's their their challenges. And you you don't know that it's a challenge until you're in it. Right. right. You know, and so how you're going to how you're going to overcome things. 
is like the, the question of life, right? And so how you're going to figure it out and how you're going to overcome it. And some people can only go so far and that's just, that's just, they can only go so far, but you find the compassion to like, love them for where they were, you know? Mm-hmm. Sally, I'm really glad that that's amazing that you had that experience with, with Steve the last time you saw him. That's, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to, to get, get to know yourself. I think that's one of the things I've really learned through this last, since John's death is I really feel like I know myself and my conscience. And I, I have these like impulses to do something and I, I like to, I like to act on it. And I feel like it's really important to do it because there's a reason because I talked to him in January and he, and he passed in April and the kids were in a good place with him as well. They had kind of, so they think they were able to say goodbye to him because they want, he was really, you know, when, when you have one of those diseases, you're so you're suffering in your own body, you know, and I believe in, I believe personally believe in life after death. So I believe he's free now and now he can really be around his boys. And he really always, the one thing about him that I was very grateful for was that he was always very uh, um, demonstrative when it came to how much he loved his sons. And his sons were the greatest thing that ever happened to him. He made that very clear. And so that's a good thing for boys to carry from their father that, you know, they were loved. I mean, that's good, right? Yeah. So I'm really grateful that because that's not something I can control either. Right. Right. And I, I do have to vouch for the BG stuff. There was a period when Sally starts talking about it and I'm like, Okay, BG. So I pictured my parents, loved them. And, you know, I grew up, but my parents had quite the CD collection from the 60s and 70s. And, um, you know, I grew up with them and I'm like, okay, BG's cool. And then she kept talking about it. But then it was interesting because, like, I would call for life advice or business advice. And the Barry Gibbs story, I, it is relatable. No, but I mean, I, I don't mean to be this. Yeah, way. but no, it's funny. I know, but it was. Because, you know, we're entrepreneurs and it's like just some of the stuff that you would share. I was like, oh, my God, like Barry. G- Basically, he moved around like every month or something because they couldn't pay the rent and all kind of stuff like that. As and a child. Yes. Child. And just like the what father, they- their father didn't support them. Yeah, he's very sweet about it because he's British and he tries to be because he <laughs> loved his father. But basically they weren't paying. They, they couldn't even pay the electric bill. And that's why I think they're in the same spot. They moved to Miami and that was it. Everybody lives close by, never moved. You know, all the brothers, kids all go to him. He's the, he's the center, like he's the center of the family and the family. And so at the end of the documentary, the thing that they said, you know, everybody got all emotional about was that he said, if he could go back, he would, he would give up all the accolades, all the Grammys, all of the success. If he could have all of his family back and everybody's like, Oh my gosh. Like he said that. And it's like, when you read about his life, his family is number one. It doesn't matter. The songs it's his family was, he wanted a family that was he, that everybody could eat and the electricity was on and they were all together. That's what his goal was. Mm-hmm. It was the Grammys. And once you understand that about him, then you went, of course, he said that he doesn't care about that. You know, that was the vehicle. That was the vehicle to make the money. 
And I think he's an artist, of course. And I think he's very talented. No auto tune back then, by the way, just throwing that out there. Yeah. True that. Yeah. Anyway, but that's what really, really got me. And I went, that's right. And I was like, that's the way I feel, you know, if you do whatever you need to do to, for the family, you know, to keep the family together or to at least reconcile whatever that is, your relationships are as complicated and dysfunctional as they may be. It's important for you to make peace with it, your family. Mm. And I just was really, you know, and I thought that was the story more so than the, what was in the documentary about the songs, you know, but if you go back and listen to the lyrics of his songs, it's like, that's another thing you go, oh my gosh, now I know what he was saying Mm, about that. Yeah. It's yeah. cool. But yeah. I will say, like, sometimes I'd be down about something and I get a video text about, you know, about the <laughs> the, the Bee Gees, something, one of Barry Gibbs songs. I'm like, I didn't never heard this song in my life, but I, I like the I like. Did you listen it. to Wind of Change? I sent yes. you Wind of Change. You did? did. Yes. It's good, isn't it? Gonna ask me. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it is. That's when we had a really powerful conversation, like about a get month ago. Get on up. But, um, around. Yeah. And I do want to say, as far as, you know, your blog, I couple of weeks actually just a few weeks ago i read the the post that you wrote about john and it was just it was so beautiful the way you took us through the journey and all the healing and it just you could tell that you've done a lot of work mm-hmm. around this mm-hmm. um and just yeah i was i be honest with you i was i cried a lot during the whole thing i just mm-hmm. i was just it hit me and I, it was just so touching. And thank you for being so vulnerable like you were today. You know, and you taught me something also, and I use this a lot. I never knew how to talk to my friends or people that I knew that lost someone to anything. And I, you know, I remember I've asked you, like, how do I do this? And you gave me some really good advice. I remember you said, Kurt, because I like I was going to be around someone who lost someone. And I said, what do I do? And you go, Kurt you're not reminding them about it by bringing it up. It's on their mind already. Mm. It's weird if you don't mention it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, and that's, I even, that, that hurts. Yeah. It yeah, hurts and, when they're, they're not mentioned. And yes. I don't know who off the top of my head, I can't remember who I had to talk to, but it was just, as you said, it was like, I am so sorry to hear about X and X. And she was like, you know, thank you. And then we moved on. So and as, especially with suicide, you, you feel like everybody's forgotten about them. Because it's not like somebody who lost, and at, listen, I'm not equating anything, but when somebody dies from cancer, we have kind of like a protocol, like there's a mm-hmm. celebration of life and he, they would have wanted to, you know, they would have wanted to keep living and they were cut short. You know, it's a mm. strange thing with somebody who ends their life. There's, there's the stigmas and there's all that stuff. So then people go, well, I don't want to mention it to her because I don't want her to be sad. But then again, I don't want to bring it up because it makes me sad. And so everybody just avoids it. Mm-hmm. And so you really get a, an interesting uh, look at your at the people who are close to you, and how they handle things. And it, it was really eye opening for me. And I am not mad at anybody. But mm-hmm. it, they all they all a person who's lost somebody wants to do is talk about their person. Oh, and I need to give a, a shout out when my kids were young. Um, there was a, a dad at the school named David Kessler, and he's actually very famous grief counselor. And he's written books, uh, the five stages of grief with Elizabeth Kubler Ross, um, 
he co-wrote that. And then he wrote a book after going through the own, his own loss of his son called the um, finding meaning, the sixth stage of grief. Hmm. It's excellent. It is excellent. And I can't emphasize enough how that name is perfect because the sixth stage is finding meaning. Mm. And it's not just meaning on why they passed or why somebody took their life. It's finding meaning on your own meaning Mm -hmm. of moving forward. And it's it. And he's great. And one of the things, one of the chapters he said was, um, was about witnessing people just want to be witnessed and they want to, they want to be able to talk about their loved one. They want to hear stories. They don't know about their loved one. And they want pictures of that they've never seen about their loved one, you know? And so it's important to, especially three months, six months, a year out, you know, they're still thinking about their loved one. They haven't moved on and they need, especially suicide loss survivors. They really need to be reminded, you know, to be, to reminded that you still remember the person because they think about them every day. Yeah. So they love it when somebody says, Oh my gosh, you know, I was just thinking John used to do this and I'd be like, Oh, Oh, I love that. I had somebody come up to me and tell me, because he used to work with the youth group at our church. And somebody came up to me and said, my son was in such a low place and didn't think that he was going to, didn't know what to do with his life and everything else. And John sat him down and talked to him and just him talking to my son made my son think that somebody cared. And I was so happy to hear that because that was, John did love children and he loved working with children. And he used to teach. In fact, when we first met, he was teaching kindergarten Sunday school, which is hilarious. Brave man. Yeah. And we have a, and just so we know, I always like to preface, we have a very open-minded church. It's great church, (laughs) open-minded in California. Love it. Um, And, and I, that was one of the things I, he, he was just so funny with the kindergartners and he was just like, they just loved him. You know, so when he, when he died, that was a whole thing that we all had to deal with at the church. There were a lot of kids that really loved him and knew him and were, you know, very upset about it, but they talked to me about it and I talked to them about it. So it's Mm. really all about talking and hearing and listening. It really is. And it's not as painful as you think it's going to be and it's worth it. So Sally, as we, as we wrap up here, I just, again, want to say thank you so much for taking Mm -hmm. the time to share this story. I learned so much more than I knew about this. And just, I'm thinking differently about my relationship with Babs and kind of, I'm glad to have this perspective and kind of, it gave me some perspective today. And I hope that our listeners, you know, they, they, I'm sure they're going to gain a lot of value as well. I guess what I want to ask, if there is someone listening to this, and they have a loved one that's in crisis or in a, in a similar situation. Is there any advice that you would put out there? Yeah, I, you know, do, do everything that you can, like really throw everything in the kitchen sink, you know, stop what you're doing, listen, listen, get help. Um, if you are thinking about it, like, you know, like I said, put it off a day. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the really p- most powerful things I heard was, don't be so sure that you can take yourself out, that you have that right. You didn't ask to be born and you have an important and valuable place in the like 
immortal fabric of the world. And you're here for a reason. And if you haven't figured it out yet, you just haven't figured it out yet. That doesn't mean that it needs to end. You don't necessarily are supposed to take yourself out of it. You're supposed to figure this out. So get as much help as you can and tell people and talk to people because you don't want to do this to your family. You know, you don't want to, it's something you never can get over and you, you don't want to do that to your family. So you want to get help. And if anybody has somebody, you've just got to, it, it's flawed. I get it. The mental health is flawed, but there are people out there. Mm-hmm. I found a therapist that were, and also ask for sliding scale. I found a therapist who was PTSD grief and she did sliding scale for me. Cause I couldn't really, at that time, my kid was in college I couldn't really afford it. And she was amazing. So you ask, ask, ask for help. There's Dee Dee Hirsch in Los Angeles. There's all sorts of organizations that are outside of the medical field too, you know, and they're amazing. So just keep asking for help. Keep asking for help. Keep getting help. And just, you know, something you, you know, they get better. Mm -hmm. Something sticks. And we can also post links on here for the Dee Dee Hirsch and the suicide, is it a hotline? The, the, the oh, suicide yeah. The suicide thing. hotline should always be on everything because uh-huh. I do think I do think it's really important because it is something because they do have they are trained to talk mm-hmm. to people and um, they do have the resources and they know where to, you know, to, to then the next step. So there's definitely stuff out there. But, you know, just keep just you know, cause the more we get out there, the more than they'll figure out ways to help. And it just has to, you know, we just have to keep, keep looking for it, but no stone unturned. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And listen to what Kurt said, you know, it is not easy sometimes mm-hmm. to keep revisiting tough times like this. And I appreciate you opening up about it and being willing to, to walk through it again so that you can be there for other people and to, and to honor John's memory as well. It was fun. Well, I get to talk about him. So I I liked it. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I like to talk about him. And I love hearing, you know, more, I I just met him once, you know, and I love hearing more. It was such an important part of your life and you're such a good friend of mine. I I enjoy hearing the stories. So yeah. Well, thank you though. Thank you. Okay. We'll, we'll leave it at that and just give you guys our information and Sally's information. Um, so Sally's blog, sallyhalida.com. Yep. Uh, is where you can find her blog and her Instagram at why I do this. Blog. No, why I, yeah. Why I care blog at why, oh, I why care do blog. I care? Oh my oh. gosh. Why do I care blog? <laughs> so Instagram work handle in progress. is. It's a work in progress. <laughs> her Instagram handle is at why do I care blog? So you can DM her there. And as for us, you can reach out to us via email, teenagertoddler2020 at gmail.com. Please, we really appreciate it whenever you smash that five stars and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast content. It's really, really helpful and we really love reading them. Smash it, baby, and review us. Yes. Um, reach out to us on Instagram and follow us at teenagertoddler and then our Patreon if you want to support us and get more content, we are actually starting to post um, some new stuff that we're reviewing. We are, Kurt and I are reviewing Midnight Mass. 
It's bringing mm. up all kinds of really good conversations about spirituality and religion and such. So come yes. find out what that's all about. There's all kinds of good stuff on the Patreon. So patreon.com forward slash teenager toddler. It's just five bucks a month to support us and to get more content. So we really appreciate everyone hanging in there with us. Reach out to any of us. We're obviously not medical professionals, but we can at least listen and try and help um, point you in the right direction if you need help. Yes. Slide into our DMs. Any of us, email us, whatever it takes. All right. Well, thanks for solving world peace with us today, Sally. Oh, Sally, this is so fun. This series with you. Thank you no, so much. No, it was much. great. Great. I hope you have me back. Oh, what was <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And come back. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Thank you guys. It was great. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.